I'm Larry Castle. This is Ken Brown. Thanks for joining us for episode nine for August 2nd of That's a Good Question. We began last week talking about, uh, we introduced the topic for this week, actually never got to it. Uh, we talked about the fact of all of the things going on with coronavirus, um, the things that we've talked about related to race relations, and kind of a connective tissue or thread going through all of these subjects is politics. Mm. And so we wanted to devote at least one episode to really just talking about Christians and politics. And so we'll do that this week. Let's start off just defining what we mean when we say politics. Yeah, so let's uh, go back to where we get the word itself, the etymology of the word. It's a Greek word polis. It means city. And so we have that in our uh, English language. We have cities like Minneapolis, that is the water city. And you've got Indian Indianapolis. It's the city of Indian land, so Indianapolis. And so politics then came to mean the organization of the city or the organization of the citizens, citizens. And then a politician is somebody who has been empowered in order to do that organizing of the city and of the citizens. Thankfully for us in a democracy, the politicians are given that power. They are authorized to exercise that power. They don't just assume the power. They don't just take the power for themselves. It's granted to them by the consent of the, the governed. And it's important for us as we talk about politics to remember this distinction between authority and power. This has always been a very helpful thing for me to remember that power means you have the ability to do something. Mm -hmm. Authority means you have the right, you have the authorization to do something. Helpful, important distinction. And you can have one without the other. Mm -hmm. You know, so if somebody has a gun, they've got power. They've got the ability to wield, wield their will over you. If they hold a gun to your head, then they can make you do things against your, your will. So they have power, but they're not authorized right. to make you do those things. They don't have the right to make you do those things. You can have uh, someone who is authorized, but they've been stripped of their power. And sometimes that can happen with, for example, police or military. We can authorize them. We can say, you have the right to go and protect a city, go and protect a, send our soldiers over and uh, protect a, a land. But if we don't give them the tools to do that, if we don't give them the, the power, they can have authority but not have no the, the power. Yeah. Yeah. So you can have one without the other. What's ideal is when the power is authorized, when the person that has been given the ability by the, those that are governed has been authorized by those over whom they are, are wielding that power. I have a pastor friend then who defines uh, politics this way. I'm not sure if it's original with him, but he says politics is the stewardship of power, the stewardship of power. So let's flesh that out a bit then. How does that definition play out uh, for those who hold positions of power then and for those of us who put them in that position? So I think that definition, uh, the stewardship of power, uh, encapsulates the important components of how politicians should 
if they were looking at it from a biblical worldview, it's the way they should understand their work. So what does stewardship mean? We say it's a stewardship of power. Stewardship, I remind you, is a management or an administration. It's used in the Bible in Luke chapter 12. Jesus told the parable of the faithful steward, and this faithful steward or this faithful manager was administrating the affairs of his, his master. That's the place where Jesus said famously, to him whom much is given, mm. much will be required. So the idea is he, God, has given us all management responsibility. We are all stewards. We are all given by him certain portions of what belong to him. And what he has entrusted to us is to be managed for his purposes. And he's going to come and check. That's what judgment for Christians is going to be about. We're not going to be judged as a Christian for whether we go to heaven or hell. We are going to be judged with regard to what we did with what God entrusted to us. So to him whom much is given, much will be required. The Apostle Paul used it in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. He said, uh, it is necessary for a steward that he be found faithful. So all of Christian life, when you think about it, now that we understand what stewardship is, it's managing what's been entrusted to you on the part of someone else for the master's benefit. So all of life then is, Christian life is stewardship. Hmm. You know, we've been entrusted by God to manage what he's given us for his purposes. So that's true of our possessions, it's true of our time. It's true of our gifts and abilities, our, our talents. It's also true of our liberties as citizens. God has given us these liberties, but He expects us to manage those. He's entrusted this to us. So the right to vote and the right for us all as citizens, citizens to entrust other people with this power to organize the city, organize the citizens, that's a stewardship that we carry out. You know, we have to manage that on God's behalf. As I think about who am I going to vote for, who am I going to entrust that power to? Voting is a stewardship of who's going to wield that very important power. Hmm. Makes sense. So, so we uh, should then, it seems, certainly be involved hmm. in that aspect of politics, voting. Um, and we can talk about later uh, whether or not a Christian should get involved beyond that. But uh, as we think about, at least in the, the modern era, um, Christian conservatives, Christians in general, are a very sought-after mm. voting bloc. Yeah, right. And uh, as such, um, we've seen a lot more involvement, mm -hmm. visible involvement by Christians. Let's talk about, has that always been the case? Yeah, it, it's right what you said, that uh, conservative Christians are an organized bloc. I mean, there are multiple groups of values voters and uh, family values uh, kinds of organizations that politicians court uh, in order to get their votes. And, uh, and these are populated by primarily conservative evangelical Christians. But that's a fairly recent phenomenon. It's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's something that's occurred within my lifetime. Mm. Uh, in the 70s, in the early 70s, mid-70s, you had little to no organized involvement on the part of evangelical conservative Christians. Prior to that, um, and I'll explain what evangelical Christian is in, in a minute, but we were primarily uninvolved in politics other than just, just voting. So political involvement by religious folks at that time, 
you know, prior to the mid to late 70s, prior to that, it was mostly those in what are called liberal or mainline churches, liberal mainline denominations. Now, what is that? So very, very quickly, a little over 100 years ago, uh, in church history, we had something called the fundamentalist modernist controversy. Mm -hmm. Modernist is a uh, synonym for liberal, fundamentalist liberal. Uh, liberals, modernists, were denying cardinal doctrines of Christianity. They were denying that the Bible is without error. They were saying the Bible has errors in it. They were denying things like the bodily, physical resurrection of, of Christ. And this was happening at denominational seminaries. Uh, one example of that would be uh, Princeton Seminary, and Princeton Seminary was a Presbyterian seminary. So when I talk about Princeton, I'm talking about the famous Princeton University, Princeton Seminary. That was a Presbyterian uh, organization, and they started to deny these things. And you had faculty members who became extremely concerned about that. Some of them believed the Bible was without error, all of these cardinal doctrines of the faith. Five of them left in 1929. And they went a few miles away to Philadelphia and they started a new seminary, West, uh, Westminster Theological Seminary. I wrote on my blog a couple of weeks ago, the Church Matters blog, about a theologian from Westminster named J. Gresham Machen. Mm -hmm. And Machen was one of those five who left mm -hmm. Princeton and helped found Westminster. So those who believed the Bible and these cardinal doctrines, they left to start their own associations and their own schools. Now, they're evangelicals uh, or f fundamentalists, but a broader term uh, is evangelical. And in, in a nutshell, an evangelical is someone who believes that there needs to be a point in time in the life of an individual where they've come in contact with the evangel. That's why the name evangelical. The gospel. Ev the gospel. So mm -hmm. the evangel is the gospel. They've come in contact with the gospel and there's been a conversion experience. Mm -hmm. And if you wanted to just put it in very simple terms, the difference between an evangelical then and a liberal or mainline uh, Protestant would be that a liberal mainline Protestant puts their emphasis upon Christian nurture. In fact, many of the liberal theologians of 100 years ago, 150 years ago, uh, wrote books with that theme, very much that theme, even with that title, mm -hmm. Christian Nurture. And the idea was that someone becomes a Christian. Some, a, a Christian is shaped, mm. made, rather than born. Whereas an evangelical says, no, they're born. Mm. They're they, they are born and then they are matured. Yeah. But you don't make a Christian by their environment. It, it's not a just a uh, changing through behavior modification and exactly. philosophy over time. So, you know, in liberal mainline denominations, you'll have a child that they come into, they're initiated into the community of faith mm -hmm. as an infant, mm -hmm. and then they are nurtured in that faith, and they go through a whole process of confirmation and all that. Not all those things are bad. I'm not, uh, you know, there's something to this idea of having some intentional instruction and, and a point at which you say, yes, I understand this, and you are confirmed in that. So it's not all bad in our uh, churches and our tradition. We don't generally have that for our children, but I'm not personally opposed to that idea. But the problem is when it becomes the vehicle of making a Christian. We're not making a Christian. One has to become a Christian, as we know. They have to be born again, and that's what an evangelical believes. And that's, that's our, uh, our aversion to that model is 
uh, is driven by a desire to not just see somebody conform externally. That's right. But we're recognizing that this is a heart change, right. a change of allegiance. Yes. Yeah. Exactly. Who we're depending on. Yeah. And so now you can see how that might translate into the political realm then. Because if you're very much into environmental change and by nurturing someone along by their environment, bringing them up in the, the Christian faith, that that's what it's all about, uh, as opposed to that being initiated by a born-again experience, well, then you can see how that would easily translate into the societal realm, that the way society is changed is the same way individuals are changed. They're changed by the environment. Mm, yeah. So we need to get involved in changing the structures of society. And as a result of that, you found in the 50s and in the 60s, when there was a lot of very important work going on in politics, in society in general, about things that we talked about a few weeks ago, civil rights, mm -hmm. uh, and trying to overcome the legacy of racism and slavery in our, in our country. That was led, uh, as far as religious people were involved, that was led by liberal mainline, um, mainline uh, religionists, Protestants. Conservatives were not involved in that at all. And I, I mean, I'm going off of, uh, you know, this is mu much of it before my time, but, but not too much. And uh, it seems as I look back on some of that and even some of the um, acquaintance I've had with it from those spheres as I was, you know, a young man growing up in those circles, uh, there was unnecessarily some opposition to some otherwise mm. good things yes. from us. That's what we talked about before. What, yes. you know, what is our culpability in that yes. or our predecessors? Yes, yes. Yeah, that's right. And uh, so there was, a, there was a lot of opposition to that. And it came back to bite mm. <laughs> some of those who opposed because during the 60s, uh, you know, Martin Luther King himself was, of course, a minister. He had gone to seminary, and must, much, if not most, of the black leadership in the civil rights movement were ministers, trained ministers, but of the liberal persuasion, not the evangelical persuasion. And so you had conservative ministers who were being asked, hey, why don't you get involved? Why, should, why don't we get involved? And they say, hey, that's not my calling. That's mm -hmm. not what I do. Well, later, as we're going to see, suddenly that became their calling. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and so that uh, difference, that frankly hypocrisy, came back to, to bite them. And one person in particular who was very deft at turning that and turning it into kind of a, a joke uh, because he knew it was a liability for him, it was Jerry Falwell, the late Jerry Falwell mm -hmm. Sr. Uh, in the 60s, he was down in Lynchburg, Virginia. He had Thomas Road Baptist Church. He was getting that going. You know, that was starting to grow, and he was asked, you know, why don't you get involved in this? And he said, that's not my calling. I'm a preacher of the gospel. You know, we, that's not what we get into. Um, then he said there were some sermons, though. Later, he would say, there are sermons I'd like to buy back if I could. That's among them. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and James Dobson, I remember hearing James Dobson talk about how uh, evangelicals uh, for a very long time didn't get involved in politics because they thought it was dirty, that that was a realm that was beneath the dignity of Christians, and so we kind of abandoned that. But as a result of not getting involved, Dobson was starting to make the point, and others were making the point, that we now have given that to secularists. If, if, if Bible-believing people don't get involved, then who are you leaving it to? Mm. So you're leaving it to liberals and you're leaving it to secularists. And so in the late 70s and the 80s, you heard much talk about secular humanism. I don't mm -hmm. know if you remember that, mm -hmm. but that was a big theme. Secular humanism is taking over our schools. Yeah. 
That then started to motivate conservative Christians to begin to get involved. But prior to the mid-late 70s, they were not. Yeah, and so we'll, uh, we'll talk about this later. I want to get, us, get, our, get ahead of ourselves, but that is uh, why, um, or I guess maybe a way to describe that is us making the mistake of um, thinking we shouldn't be involved versus thinking about how we should be involved. Mm, and we'll yeah, talk good. about that a little later. Um, so let's talk now about what changed then in the mm-hmm. 70s such that conservative, and you kind of led us into that already, such that conservative evangelicals did get involved. Talk more about that. So if you've been watching our That's a Good Question uh, episodes, you you may remember a few episodes ago we talked about the fact that the Supreme Court has been getting cases for the last several decades that are of a different sort than they used to get. With the change in our culture overall to a post-Christian culture, you now have cases coming before the Supreme Court that are bubbling up because there are changes taking place in the society. So abortion, so uh, what is the definition of, of marriage? Those kinds of things weren't part of the Supreme Court docket in the 30s and the 40s and the 50s. But since the 60s, they have very much become part of that. Well, now, as a result of that, then conservative Christians, remember what conservative is. Uh, We talked about it last week. You're trying to conserve something. Mm -hmm. So if you're trying to conserve these moral values and you see those being eroded, you can see now how people might start to get excited, uh, concerned, and then involved, and that's exactly what happened. So with regard to abortion, Francis Schaeffer, some of you will know that name, the late uh, great theologian and philosopher Francis Schaeffer. Uh, in the 70s, he teamed up with a man named C. Everett Koop. C. Everett Koop later became the, um, the Surgeon General of the United States under President Ronald Reagan. But it's the first Surgeon General I remember. The first, okay. Mm-hmm. And he was famous, world-renowned world in the 70s. For the beard. Well, <laughs> well he had this, so uh, those of you who know Coop, yeah, he had that kind of... Uh, Press pause, funky, do a Google search. Yeah, beard. <laughs> and then, of course, there's Francis Schaefer, who always looked like he crawled out from under a rock. He put those two guys <laughs> together, right? So I'm, work, I'm working on a look like that. <laughs> but they're both brilliant guys, yeah, just brilliant guys. And Coop was world-renowned because he was the lead pediatrician at Philadelphia Children's Hospital, and he had performed the first successful separation of Siamese twins mm. there. And so he had achieved world renown, but he was an evangelical Christian. And then you have Francis Schaefer. Francis Schaefer uh, is a conservative, Bible-believing, Presbyterian. Um, he had started in Switzerland, uh, Labrie Fellowship, and Young people from all over the world came to Labrie to sit at the feet of, of mm-hmm. Francis Schaefer. And he was discussing, uh, Schaefer was, things that these young people were very interested in, uh, especially because of the upheaval of the 60s. Mm-hmm. Well, okay, what is truth? Is there such a thing as absolute truth? And where mm-hmm. does the Christian fit into the, you know, the overall society? And out of that, he wrote a book. It's kind of his magnum opus called How Shall We Then Live? But he teamed up with Coop. Uh, in, I think it was 76, to write a book called Whatever Happened to the Human Race. And that book was about life issues, life and death issues. It dealt with abortion primarily, Mm -hmm. but also euthanasia, end of life issues Mm -hmm. as well, and how the Supreme Court uh, fits into that. It was a book, and it also was 
a movie. I remember seeing that. I remember reading those books, Whatever Happened to the Human Race, How Shall We Then Live, being uh, greatly impacted by them. Then a group of ministers got together, prominent conservative ministers got together. They formed something called the Christian Roundtable, and they did that to discuss how can we mobilize to get our people involved, to understand the seriousness of these issues, to now start electing people who understand the seriousness of these issues, getting judges on the court mm. who, will, uh, who will take a conservative originalist that we talked about a few weeks ago approach to their interpretation, Christian Roundtable. And then the granddaddy of all of those organizations mm -hmm. was the Moral Majority. This is the name I recognize? Yeah. Moral Majority. And that was started by the late Jerry Falwell Sr. And that's why you know, I joked earlier, and he would joke, there are some sermons I would like to have back because here he was in the 60s saying, hey, that's not my job, it's not what I do. Mm -hmm. And now here he is in the late 70s uh, and well into the 80s, and he's very much at the fore. He is, he is the face and the voice of conservative evangelicals and their involvement in the political sphere. Yeah, and this is all um, very uh, well known to you. You've had some personal involvement in that, right? This is as you're going through college and you told right. me a little bit about that. Let's right. share that with us. Yeah, so uh, full disclosure here. Uh, <laughs> you I, the big sigh as you begin this. <laughs> I graduate from, all 76 is when whatever uh, happened to the human race comes out. You know, Francis Schaefer, Coop, all of that's going on. And I'm in high school at that point. Uh, I graduate in 80 from high school. Uh, that fall, begin college. But uh, I become very interested in these issues at that time. I'm following what the moral majority is doing very closely. In fact, not just following what they're doing uh, very closely, uh, I become a card-carrying member of the, <laughs> of the moral majority. I literally had a card with my name on it. <laughs> that's that was not, a just, card. A that's not just a figure of speech. I literally had my, my Did you ever card. have to pull it out and show it? <laughs> <laughs> I don't think I did. But I devoured uh, Francis Schaeffer's books. I think he wrote 22 books in his lifetime, and I read them all and uh, with, with great profit. I attended rallies that uh, Jerry Falwell and his school put on. They were called I Love America uh, rallies. I went to pro-life protests. Um, uh, I went to one, for example, in Kalamazoo, Michigan here, and at that time the uh, Upjohn Pharmaceutical uh, Company was headquartered in Kalamazoo. And it was Upjohn that had developed the RU486 uh, uh, morning after pill, which was an abortifacient. And so that, in the pro-life movement, had made uh, you know, quite a splash and it was caused great concern. And so there were rallies outside the headquarters of Upjohn, mm. and I'm in Kalamazoo, and I'm part of, part of those. And in my first year in college, one of the classes that I took, uh, this uh, professor, it was a history class, but this professor gave us all a questionnaire, and he asked us to fill it out, and it included putting on there, what are your interests? And I put on this, uh, the in, my two interests were the two things you're never supposed to talk about, religion and <laughs> politics. But that's what I put on there. You've been talking about them ever since. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> religion and politics. So I'm 18, I turn this thing in, I don't know why he's asking for it, that was unusual, most professors didn't do that. But then uh, sometime later in the semester, he uh, asked me to stay after class, and he said that uh, we have gotten uh, a request from a senator's office, and that was in Michigan here, 
a liberal Democratic senator at the time named Don Regal. He had, of course, his office in D.C., but he had an office here in Detroit as well. And they were looking for an intern there. And he said, I saw that you put that you're interested in politics. And so I jumped at that opportunity and still very much look back with great fondness at the time I was able to do that mm. during the summer of 1981 and that internship in, uh, in Regal's office. So yeah, I've been interested in these things for a long time. Yeah, and so um, as you then talk about that era and all of these initiatives and involvement, what was the outcome of all of this mobilization by Christians? So what happens is, you know, I said that was the summer of 81 that I'm able to do that uh, internship. Well, just months before that, uh, in January of 81, Ronald Reagan was inaugurated hmm. as the president. So that was a crowning achievement of all of this stuff that had been going on in the 70s and the Christian Roundtable and the Moral Majority. And evangelical Christians were given great credit for putting Ronald Reagan in office, that he had put together a coalition of these conservative Christians and was able to get them out to the polls and to vote and to vote for him. And here he is then, he's the, the president. And uh, so it was a great success. It was hailed as a, a great success and it established evangelicals now as a political force that needed to be taken into account, a special interest group that was to be courted now, I say that, and I'll just say that slowly again, mm -hmm. a special interest group that's to be courted by politicians. And that may all sound great, uh, and it sounded great to me when I was 18. But over time, if you think about it, you think about how religious people becoming a special interest group can potentially become a, a problem. Not necessarily, but potentially. I'm just immediately uh, thinking of the favor given to Christians in Rome at one point. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I might be I might be yeah. connecting dots that don't necessarily need to be connected, but I do well, think of that. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, so you know, uh, this uh, idea that we're going to be courted by politicians. What's that going to mean on our part? Mm -hmm. Then, what are we going to give up? if anything, in order, what are we going to compromise? Mm. Because once you get in the political realm, guess what? You're in the compromise realm. Mm. Uh, and that's going to come back, I think, to, to bite us later on. But then it was the euphoria of, hey, this has worked. Ronald Reagan is the president. He's pro-life. The Republican Party platform is decidedly pro-life, becomes mm -hmm. right in the platform itself, pro-life planks. And that has been the case up to, to this day. So it was very successful that way. You had Reagan elected. 1980 also brought in a Republican Senate. So Reagan was able to nominate judges. We talked about how that happens mm -hmm. a few weeks ago. Mm -hmm. Senate has to confirm those. Well, guess what? They're all getting confirmed yeah. because he's got a Republican Senate. And then he gets reelected in 84. And then in 88, his vice president gets elected president. So you have 12 straight years. So that was quite a, a record, and so it was deemed to be, it was deemed to be a success. And you, uh, one of the things you mentioned to me as we prepared for the show is 24 of the last 40 years have had Republican pro-life presidents. Yeah. So all of this, and we think, well, hey, success, mm. right? Right, right. Or, or not right? <laughs> yeah, you would think 24 out of 40 years, 12 in a row, right there from 80 to 92, and yet, 
here we are. Here we are in 2020 and Roe versus Wade is still the law of the land. If you had told someone in 1980 that would be the case 40 years later, uh, I wouldn't have believed it. If you had told me in 1980 that there would be 12 straight years of Republican president and during that period of time five judges would be confirmed to the Supreme Court by those two presidents, Reagan and Bush, and that we would still have Roe v. Wade, as a, that it would not have been overturned. I wouldn't have believed that. But here we are. It's still the law of the land. Mm -hmm. And then uh, marriage has been redefined, radically redefined. And not only that, but, and I'm going to say this, and I, and I just say it, friends, and I hope you understand it in the context in which I'm saying all of this. I say it as someone who voted uh, Republican, straight Republican ticket, actually, in, uh, in um, 2016, which means my vote for president went to uh, President Trump. Um, but for the first time in my lifetime, evangelicals have overwhelmingly supported someone whose values personal values are diametrically opposed mm. to what we stand for. And that's why I said earlier about being a special interest group mm -hmm. that is courted, because now that begins to change what it is you value, mm -hmm. what it is you look for and how you go about getting it. And we've started to, we've started to see that. So there may have been some wisdom way back in the 50s and 60s and 70s when evangelicals didn't get involved as much as they did because it was dirty. Remember Dobson mm -hmm. said that? Mm -hmm. You know, it's dirty. That's, that's not our realm. That's not what we do. You know, and I just thought that was the craziest thing back then. But now I look at 40 years later where we are and the compromises that are made. And I'm not advocating, in fact, we'll talk about it later. I'm not mm -hmm. advocating disengaging right. by any means. I'm not disengaged, and I'm not advocating disengaging. But I am saying there were dangers. We were warned about the dangers. And now we can start to see that we're experiencing some of those dangers. And that, that gets to what I was saying earlier, not whether we're involved, but how we're involved. Mm. And uh, I mm -hmm. think, I think uh, you've got some things that you can share with us about that. You know, so how did it happen? As I asked that question, how did it happen um, that all of this could go right for us and yet we still end up where we are with who we have as president and um, you know, with personal values so opposed right. to our own Christian values? Right. How, how did we get here? Where did, where did we go wrong? So I am at this uh, internship at uh, Senator Don Regal's office and uh, I when I would go into the office, I was regularly talking to those that were in the office. These were paid staffers who were there. They were full-time people. I was an intern. Uh, but I had a chance to rub shoulders with them, go to lunch with them, talk politics with them, which was a great experience for me as an 18-year-old, 19-year-old uh, at that point. But uh, one of the ladies that, she was actually the chief of staff in that office, an older lady, very nice. She kind of took me under her wing, and she considered herself to be an evangelical Christian. It was very interesting. And here she is working for Don Regal. <laughs> and Don Regal was very liberal. And I just couldn't put that together in my, in my mind, and I told her that. And we talked about it a lot. This is the, the truth. I'm sure you all believe me, but uh, I, one time I was talking to her about my convictions with regard to these moral issues, and, you know, you're helping someone and electing someone 
who is going the opposite direction of these moral issues, in particular on abortion. And she was weeping as we were, we were mm. talking about this. You could tell it weighed on her greatly. She was trying to work through it. And I was trying to work through it because, you know, I liked her very much. I appreciated the fact that she was taking me under her wing. I enjoyed being in that environment. Uh, I thought that I might pursue politics myself, but I'm trying to figure that out. How can a Christian person do that? Well, how, where, what spot, if any, would there be for someone like me? And she gave me a book. Uh, and the book was by a guy named Paul Henry. Paul Henry was a congressman from Grand Rapids, Michigan uh, in D.C. And tragically, he died of a brain aneurysm at the age of uh, 56 in 1993. But at the time, he was a congressman. Prior to that, he taught politics, political science at Calvin College in, in Grand Rapids. But Paul Henry was an evangelical Christian. He was the son of, some of you will know this name, Carl F.H. Henry, the famous uh, theologian and the, the founder uh, of Christian, first editor of Christianity Today mm. magazine was Carl Henry. So Paul Henry was his son. Uh, and Paul Henry wrote this book, Politics for Evangelicals. And this lady gave this uh, to me. And uh, I read it and Paul Henry overall had some very good things to say with regard to evangelical involvement in politics in that book. In 1985, he, Paul Henry, was interviewed by Christianity Today magazine. And I've got a quote here that I'd like to read regarding what he started to see in the mid-80s already that was giving him concern about how Christians go about their involvement. This is what he said. He said, with the increased political activism of evangelicals in the late 1970s and 1980s, Christianity Today said, Paul became more concerned about how some Christians were getting involved than that they be involved. He cautioned that, quote, the real danger at this point in the evangelical community is not the mistaken notion that Christians ought not be involved. We're coming through that. Now the danger lies in how we're being involved and whether we're listening and following, as it were, the promptings of the Spirit or simply manipulating religious symbols. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of a haunting phrase to me. You know, are we listening to the Spirit? Are we following the Lord? Are we following the sword of the Spirit, His Word? Or are we manipulating religious symbols? And I would say to you, dear friends, and I say to myself, as someone who enjoys politics, enjoys following what's happening, believes that I have a stewardship, a management responsibility to understand what is happening and plug all of that into a biblical worldview and in my position as a pastor to try to be able to help folks understand that from a, a biblical worldview. So uh, I'm, I'm very much about that and I think that's, that's very important. But I am very, very concerned that we, when we get involved in the political realm, we can be manipulated. We can manipulate and be manipulated both. Mm -hmm. And we cannot ever sell our souls for the pottage of politics, of power. It's temporary. Mm -hmm. It's worldly power. And, and I've seen it happening. I've seen it happening for a very long time, and I see it happen, and I see it happening in a big way now. Not just now, so I'm not putting this all on where we are now. This has been happening mm -hmm. for a long time.
But when he uses that phrase, are we simply manipulating religious symbols? I think we may have seen the apex of that, honestly, on June 1st, just two months ago. And our president, you may remember, some of you may remember this, but the streets were cleared of people that were protesting. It was a curfew at 7 o'clock, but it was 6.40. So the curfew wasn't there yet. And yet soldiers, uh, you know, armed pol military police clear out. And then you have the Secretary of Defense and you have the Attorney General and you have the Chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff and all of them coming out with the president and they march across the street through Lafayette Square and they stand in front of St. John's Episcopal Church, this historic church where presidents have worshipped over many, many, many years for a photo op. And the photo op is in front of a church, one, but with the president and everybody seeing this with the holding the Bible. And it was like a three-minute thing. And I, and I just say that to just say, these are words spoken in 1985, manipulating religious symbols. And here we are in 2020, and we've seen before our eyes that kind of thing, that kind of thing happening. So Paul Henry was concerned in 1985. I didn't start to get concerned until the late 80s and early 90s. I began to become concerned about what this political involvement was doing to evangelicals and what evangelicals were doing in politics. Mm -hmm. Now, I wasn't alone. He wasn't alone in that. There's some other people that I'll tell you about, but I probably should check in. We're probably about done for today, you think? Yeah, I think we, okay. could, we, could, <laughs> we can call it here. Yeah. Okay. Uh, about 37 minutes or so. All right, so we will, this will be a two-parter then. Not three, because last week wasn't Two. really the start of this. Yeah. Uh, so if you would, uh, if you'd like to tune in next week, we'll conclude this conversation about Christians and politics, and we'll, uh, we'll shift gears then talking about, okay, so should Christians be involved, and if so, how? Okay. We'll, uh, we'll start off with that next week. So thanks for uh, tuning in and watching. And just a reminder, if you're watching this, you're probably watching it on our website or directly on our YouTube channel. Make sure you subscribe. If you want to be notified when a new episode comes out, you can hit the notification bell there on YouTube. Also, follow us on Facebook so that uh, you'll be kept up with any news and new materials we publish, including blog articles. So thanks for uh, joining us, and we'll see you next time. If you have a question you'd like us to consider, you can send that into our email address, info at cbctrenton.com, or text it to us at 97000.